If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Don't worry, I know I did two sermons on the first half of Ephesians, but I'm going to do one on the last half, so we won't you know, be in the same text. We're, going, we're moving forward. <clears throat> we're in a series called Imagining the Kingdom. Now, to be clear, there's a difference between imagining or the imagination and that which is imaginary. We think of something that's imaginary, that's not real, but you can use your imagination to think about many things that are real, and you can actually even create reality with your imagination. Now you say, that sounds a little bit much. Well, actually, no. We all do it every day. At least every day we go to the store and buy something. We're creating a commerce system based on our imagination that that paper money and those coins in our pocket actually have value. But in reality, there's no intrinsic value in them. You just have to have enough people imagining that there's value to them for it to work. And as long as we keep that gig going, we're in good shape. So... That's just the way that works. But there are a lot of things. The reality is that the same event can happen to different people and have a different result depending on how they imagine what is happening and what is actually taking place because it's how we function as human beings. Things start in our minds and how we're going to respond to them is based on the, the mental map, if you will, that we, that we make of it. So imagining the kingdom, <clears throat> and today our subtitle is Transforming our view of reality, and we'll be, uh, our text is actually a prayer, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. <clears throat> and so, if you would read with me, I'll be reading from the New International Version uh, to begin with. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, or everything in every place, possibly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in your word, Lord, we ask that you speak to us, that we would hear your voice, uh, superseding even the words of the sermon. Speak to our hearts. uh, Lead us before your glorious face and and transform us uh, through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I grew up Catholic, as did my wife. In a Catholic church, the most prominent thing you'll notice when you walk in, generally speaking, a crucifix. Now, a crucifix is similar to a cross. For those that don't know the difference, I'll give you a brief explanation. On a crucifix, you not only have the cross, but you have an image of a man, Jesus, who has been crucified. So, Legs crossed, nailed at the bottom, arms outstretched, and, and you know, spear in the side, the hole where that would have been. So a crucifix is prominently displayed. In most Protestant churches, 
there's a cross somewhere. I mean, ours isn't overly prominent, but at least it's right there. Uh, and if you go outside, there's a big one on the backside of the building, okay? A, a cross is often the most prominent thing that is there. Now, <clears throat> if you were to stumble into an Eastern Orthodox church, just about anywhere in the world, the most prominent thing is in the dome that is above you. Even in the cave churches in certain parts of the world that they have, uh, pretty amazing Cappadocian cave, ch- cave churches. You might think church in a cave is kind of rustic. Oh, no, these are am- amazing places with these things dug out. It's just, it's crazy. But you'll look way up, and in this dome, there is a painting. And there's a picture of that painting that will look like this. It's a picture of Christ who is looking down and ruling from the heavens over you. And it's designed to stir your imagination to understand that Christ rules over everything. And every aspect of that picture, from the Scripture in the one hand, to the way His fingers are held, to the way the robe is arranged, and the colors of the robe, and on and on and on, every little aspect has a symbolic meaning that they are taught and they they come to understand. Okay, It's called the Pantocrator. I assume I'm saying that right. Pantocrator. Just pronouncing it like an English word. But... Your eyes are drawn to it when you walk in. And it's really that picture of Christ in heaven above, ruling over everything in heaven and earth. And his point of contact with earth, his embodiment, in other words, being the church in the world, so that when you gather, you get that vision of him present above you. One's imagination is drawn to a great truth when they see that, that is found in our text that we read a moment ago. Christ being ascended and seated at God's right hand. But if that rule is going to be effective, if if it is going to make a difference, something must change in our imagination. And not just that He is ruling over everything in heaven and earth. Other things must change. It, It is true that Christ has power over every other power that attempts to control our lives, over every force of chaos and destruction, over every power that controls our behavior, But until Christ's reign changes how we see the world, it will have little impact in our lives. Little of what God wants Christ's reign to accomplish will actually be accomplished until we can change how we think the world is as His people through whom He is filling the world. The eyes of our hearts must be enlightened, as Paul prayed in our text. Now, one could study the structure of Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1, the specifics of Paul's prayer, and even the glory of this prayer, but miss the point of the prayer. And I want this morning to make sure that we don't miss the point of the prayer. My goal is to clearly communicate the point of the prayer. Uh, The structure, that's important. I, I look at all of that, that's important. I hope it informs the sermon, but more importantly, I want you to get the point of the prayer. Let's look at this prayer. It is, this text is a prayer. Ephesians is actually drenched in prayer and worship. Aside from the brief greeting, the whole first chapter is worship and prayer. The third chapter extols God's wisdom in the gospel and in the first half, and then prays again for the church in the second half. And then the book ends with Paul requesting prayer and the kinds of things he's asking them to pray for. So, yes, Ephesians is drenched in prayer and worship. We've also seen that the driving metaphor of this book of Ephesians in the last two weeks is 
adoption. We'll continue to point that out because it's relevant throughout the book. But I, there, these two things may be more than coincidentally true about Ephesians. There may be a connection, a causality, if you will, between them. Maybe Ephesians is drenched in prayer and worship because those are the family language. That's how this family begins its communication, if you will. This is what we do when we gather around the supper table in communion. It is central to communication in this new family as we fellowship with God and one another. True fellowship with God and each other begins in worship and in prayer. And if you want to have true fellowship with other people, begin praying for them and with them. And that will transform so much in that relationship. Paul begins his prayer, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. So we see immediately that this prayer has to do with our relationship to God as Father. It flows naturally out of chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, which praises God for the glorious truth of our adoption by making us heirs. Adoption is the heart, as I said, of the whole letter. And enlightening our eyes to see the changed reality that adoption has brought about is necessary in order for that adoption to transform our lives. The point of the prayer is that our adoption would result in transformed lives. And it gets to the heart of how that will take place. The goal of the prayer is that the church's imagination would be reshaped so that Christ's rule over everything in heaven and earth would manifest itself through the church in every place, or in every way, in every place. Why? Because we are, his, we are adopted in Him. Well, again, back to our Panto Crater picture. Well, that's a fine starting point for imagination. It must go further. It must go deeper. So we're going to explore this prayer under three headings, transforming our relationships, transforming our imaginations, and transforming our lives. <coughs> under that first heading, transforming our relationships. Now, in this prayer, family relationship is created by our adoption, and, and, and this family relationship is referenced three times in, in the prayer. Um, The rest of the letter certainly makes clear that Paul saw room for growth in the Ephesians. But here note that he says in verse 15 that he sees their faith in Jesus and love for all God's people. They were evidencing love for all God's people. Now, yes, they had room to grow, as we'll see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But he sees their love for all God's people. Their adoption and inclusion inclusion as God's heirs, God's possession, if you will, verse 14 put it, had already begun to change how they related to one another. The the purpose of the letter is that it might do so, so more and more, that their adoption might transform them more and more. You see, our adoption by the Father not only changes our relationship to God as Father, it also changes our relationship to the church, to one another. It changes both of those. The second way we see this family um, transformation of relationship in the prayer is in verse 17. I keep asking the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. Now, it literally reads the Father of glory, and and nothing wrong with saying glorious Father. It's adjectival, that's fine. But I think it makes a difference here a little bit because as Kyle Snodgrass in the NIV application commentary pointed out, quote, glory often refers to that which makes God visible 
that which makes God visible, or to his activity of making himself visible. Given the context in Ephesians, the nuance seems to be the Father who shows his glory, that is, the Father who reveals himself. The Father who reveals himself. So the, he's praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father who makes himself known, the Father who reveals himself, that he would do what? Make himself known, if you want to summarize the rest of that prayer, that he would do just that. But again, he prays because he sees their love for Christ and all God's family. He prays to the glorious Father. And then, um, as we notice what he prays to this glorious Father, he starts by praying that he would transform our imaginations. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. We'll talk about that more, but that's really what our imaginations are. But they need to be informed by a new sense, if you will. And then he supplies the power that he, to transform how we live with each other. And he wants us to come to greater understanding of that. Because you see, by God making himself known to his people... It is the means by which he will make himself known to the world. So we, we serve a God who is going to fill the earth with, with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Amen? Well, you ever thought about how he's going to do that? We read it right here at the end of our, our text. He's going to fill everything in every place through the church. You see, at one point, God had to make himself known in one place in the Middle East in a temple. Now, the temple is his people, and they're in every place, everywhere, and he's going to fill the world with the knowledge of his glory through his people. And so we have to be transformed for that to take place, and that's what this prayer is ultimately about. And then the third reference in here to our new family is a little more subtle. It's not as obvious, but it's wrapped in the word body that's at the end of the prayer in verse 23 when it refers to the church, the ecclesia, the gathered community, that's what that really means, as Christ's body. Christ doesn't have multiple bodies. It's not like one head, a thousand bodies. No, it's one body, one head, one body. And so we are part, as God's people, of one body. We are united in Him. And we saw that last week that we are chosen in Him, we are adopted in Him, we are predestined in Him. And if we are in Him, we are connected with each other. We are one body. So our adoption has transformed our relationships, but it can only do so more and more as the Spirit transforms our imaginations. And that gets us to the second point. (coughs) I want to zero in here for a bit this morning. Paul thinks that our spiritual eyes need help. Knowing Christ, we are not totally blind. That's good news. But like the man who Jesus first spits on and then touches, like he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Imagine that, right? Still legally blind, just can see what he couldn't before. Likewise, we see, but barely, as Christians. Before we were completely blind, Christ opens our eyes and we see enough to just know that he is glorious and he is wonderful and we love him. But truth be told, we still are blind in so many ways. And we don't really know that we're blind, generally speaking, because we don't know what it's supposed to look like. So it's a growing process. 
We, we, we need the continuing touch of Jesus, the ongoing work of opening our eyes by the Holy Spirit. There, there's another scene in Matthew's Gospel as well as Mark's. I'll, I'll be talking about the Mark edition, if you will. But it's at the end of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. You may remember this one because it's in both of those Gospels. James and John approached Jesus. He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? It's almost like the genie, you know, I'll grant you three wishes. What do you want me to do for you? Oh, boy, they're ready. And it's actually a question that he asked all disciples. They asked, James and John, for power, for position. They want to be great as the world defines greatness. Jesus gently rebukes them and reorients their thinking, pointing out that the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus, the one standing in front of them, did not come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life for many. Well, then you've got the next scene, and we're not really supposed to separate the scenes. The next scene is just really a duplication of the previous scene, but everything turns out different. It's a recapitulation, if you will, to go back to that word we were talking about the other day. In this one, it's blind Bartimaeus who's calling out for Jesus, so Jesus asks him the same question. What do you want me to do for you? The wording is identical in both questions to James and John and to him. The blind beggar who has no aspirations for greatness asks that his eyes be opened and Jesus immediately grants his request. How often do we find ourselves praying for greatness? For a bigger church, for a bigger ministry, for miraculous powers, for respect from others, for promotions, for new cars and houses. The list goes on. And we wonder why prayer doesn't seem to work, or worse, we attribute God to, to, to God the satisfaction of our greed when it seems that they are answered. And, as is usual, Jesus gently rebukes us. Sometimes it just takes a long time. <laughs> He'll do it as we're ready to hear it. And teaches us that He did not come to be served, but to serve. If only we could see our true need, we'd be asking for eyes to see. But that's just the point. We don't see that we need eyes to see because we don't see. He always grants the answer to that prayer every time. And that's effectively, it's Bartimaeus' prayer that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and ultimately for us. How many senses are there? You that have been through elementary school, high school, you know, so on and so forth, college. How many senses are there? Five, William tells us he's right. Well, at least that's what we're told, right? Ever since Aristotle, for over 2,300 years, since Aristotle told us that all animals have five senses, that's what we've gone with. Nobody's really questioned that too much. Now, there are some that might say, well, we really have two more recently, Chemical senses and mechanical senses. You know, like touch is mechanical. Smelling is chemical. You know, you could... But those are more like categories and not senses per se. But others question that maybe we've left some out. For instance, Fiona McPherson says, quote, For a start, Aristotle missed a few in humans. Uh, Proprioception is a sense. The awareness that of your body, which is distinct from touch. And... Equilibrioception, which is the sense of balance, which has links to both touch and vision, and I think hearing too. But anyway, 
Now, one could ask whether sonar, which is found in bats, is a sense, right? But that wouldn't be in any of the five. Sonar is very different, but they seem to have that. So there's something going on there, some ability there. And then recently, there, there's uh, in giant wells they discovered, and this is actually like 2012, I think it is, G- giant wells, um, there's a volleyball-sized sensor at the tip of their lower jaw. They have no idea what it's doing yet, but they can tell that it's some sort of receptor sensor. Uh, so maybe that's another sense that we have yet to discover. A century ago, a German zoologist named Jacob, uh, and I'll butcher his last name, but something to the effect of Exkel, uh, he coined the term umwelt. It's a weird word because it's German and not English, so we don't. But it's it's now a, a scientific term, umwelt. <coughs> um, it's from the German word for environment. It doesn't mean environment, but they took that word and modified it, and 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 you get this this word. It's it's it doesn't refer to an animal's surroundings like you would think of in terms of environments in an objective sense. Rather, it is the world as the animal perceives it. When we talk about an animal's environment, we talk about their environment as we perceive it, not as they perceive it. Okay? We, we look at everything from our vantage point, not theirs. And so Umwelt is trying to discern the world through their senses um, <clears throat> as the animal perceives it. Uh, so, so Ed Yong, in, in his book, An Immense World, um, ask his readers to imagine this. So I, I'm going to ask you to join in with him in this imagination, if you will. Imagine a high school gymnasium with a, an elephant, uh, a mouse, uh, a rattlesnake, uh, a robin, an owl, a bat, a mosquito, a bumblebee, and of course a human, along with a potted plant with a sunflower in it. And then he goes about describing how each of these would perceive that one room differently from the others. I won't read all of the description, but I'll give you a sample of it in a moment. But in that scenario, it means there would be eight different umwelts in the one space. Because all eight of them perceive everything quite differently, one from the other. So, here's a snippet. The elephant raises its trunk like a periscope. The rattlesnake flicks out its tongue. The mosquito cuts through the air with its antennae. All three are smelling the space around them, taking in the floating sense. The elephant sniffs nothing of note. The rattlesnake detects the trail of a mouse and coils its body in ambush. The mosquito smells the alluring carbon dioxide from Rebecca's breath, that's the human, and the aroma of her skin. It lands on her arm ready for a meal, but before it can bite, she swats it away, and her slap disturbs the mouse. It squeaks in alarm at a pitch that is audible to the bat, but too high for the elephant to hear. The elephant, meanwhile, unleashes a deep, thunderous rumble, too low-pitched for the mouse's ears or the bat's, but felt by the vibration-sensitive belly of the rattlesnake. Rebecca, who is oblivious to both the ultrasonic mouse squeaks and the infrasonic elephant rumbles, listens instead to the robin, who is singing uh, at frequencies much better suited to her ears. So she's listening to a robin sing, the, the, the rattlesnake's feeling a roar. Uh, all these different things are going on in one space at the same time. In other words, each has its own sensory bubble, if you will. Imagine each animal's body is like a house. And their houses all differ from each other, especially in terms of, of the number and size of the windows that are in the house, which, through which they view the outside world. For one, the view of the garden is amazing. For another, all they see is a single plant, and another doesn't even know it exists. The windows represent our senses, not just seeing, but all of our senses in that 
little analogy. Spiritually, we come into this world with only a few keyholes or pinholes on the side of the house facing God and the truths of the kingdom. We have windows everywhere else, and we perceive that's all that exists. Every now and then we see a little light peering through a hole, and we kind of get our eye down there, and we look, and we there's something out there. That's about as good as we can do until one day God opens a bigger hole, a window, if you will, in that side of the house. Paul prays that the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord would come and install some giant picture windows on the side of the house facing God and His relationship to us. Amen? The eyes of your heart being enlightened is a way of saying that we need a whole new means of sensing the world. Maybe like that volleyball-sized sensor in the whale's mouth. A, a spirit-infused sensor in our hearts so we can see the world in new ways and therefore reimagine a whole new way of living in it. But what is it specifically that we are to see through these spirit-installed picture windows? Verse 17, I keep asking the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. The whole prayer is really about knowing the Father better. Having been adopted, the first half of the chapter, we need to get to know the Father and our relationship to Him better. The three requests that follow are really the specifics of how we will come to know Him better, which is clearer in the English Standard Version than it is in the NIV. The NIV breaks it up. This whole, by the way, our whole text, 15 through 23, is one sentence in Greek, just like the first half, 3 through 14 is one sentence. Well, this is one sentence again. But the ESV captures that sense better when it says that Paul asked the Father that he, quote, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. So in other words, the things that follow, the three requests that follow, are the ways by which he's asking the Father to help you know him better. Know what? Well, the three things in verses 18 and 19. First, to know the hope to which he has called you. To know the hope to which he has called you. Our adoption comes with a calling. In, verse, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the implications of this calling are teased out. You're probably familiar with these verses, but there we read, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is one body, or there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Or maybe it could read, just as you are called with one hope of your calling. Either way, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice that calling comes up three times in the space of those six verses. Paul's prayer is that we would know the hope to which he has called us. Last week we, we saw, and I think the week before we touched on it as well, that one of the key responsibilities of heirs was to maintain unity in the household. 
No wonder our calling as adopted sons and daughters requires us to maintain unity. Paul wants the Father to help us to see the hope of a calling where we are actually united and, and, and functioning as one in our lives with each other. Listen, you might think, well, how important is that? <laughs> Look around in the world today. Disunity reigns supreme. And the church is called to bear witness to God's kingdom before the world by our unity. Gospel unity within the congregation and between congregations across the community and the world. You want to bear witness. I mean, that, that would be an effective witness. But the world presently, as a general rule, looks at the church... And they don't see any better job of unity being done. You might say, well, they can't criticize us since they're not doing it. They don't claim to be doing it. It isn't their calling, it's ours. And they, they can see that we're not measuring up, but we ought, we, we, we've got to begin to do that. And it's going to come when the Father helps us to see the hope of our calling. This, is one, of, th- this one is really one of our greatest opportunities in our witness before the world. But it does seem to be one of the hardest to get right, to be sure. We need to understand the hope to which he has called us. The hope is not just an otherworldly hope, like, yes, one day we're going to be in heaven. That's not the point of that hope. Sure, it includes that one day. But as you see the, the calling in chapter 4, he doesn't mention anything about where we're going. He mentions everything about how we live together in those six verses. Another aspect of our calling is that we would bring honor to the family name. That was a responsibility of an adopted heir. And so we pray, our Father, may your name be hallowed. May we live, as it were, in such a way, doing your will on earth as it is in heaven, That your kingdom manifests itself more and more and your name is honored. Our calling, as we know from other verses, is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Like Israel's, it's to be a light to the nations. We need to see the hope of our calling that we would live in such a way that we are a light to the nations. Amen? Amen. The second request in this prayer is to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, the idea that God has an inheritance in us seems odd. But it is fitting. We always want to change that, I've wanted to for years, into our inheritance from God. But actually, it's his inheritance in his holy people. And as much as we might want to flip it, it's just not what it says. And the context seems to bear out that it's not what it intended to say. Verse 14, at the end of the first half, that that praise that is in verses 3 through 14, it ends by referring to we who have been adopted as God's very own possession, almost like his treasured possession. We are his inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork, his creation, his Some would say work of art. God treasures his people. And we, through Jesus Christ, having been adopted, are that people. The third thing he wants us to see, 
the Spirit to illumine us so that we can see is to know His incomparably or incomparably great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants us to know that all the resources of the Father's glory and power are available to us to transform our lives so that we can fulfill His calling on our lives. God has given us responsibilities as His heirs. But He has not just told us what to do. He has made available all the power of heaven's arsenals to accomplish the seemingly impossible. No matter how impossible you think transforming your life is, and you could make a list, I'm sure, as I could. I could make a real list on how impossible it is. But it's difficult, I grant you. But it is not as impossible as raising Jesus from the dead. And he did that with that power. So guess what? There's plenty of power available to you. Now, I think this third one, it needs a whole point of its own, since it's really the point and purpose of the whole prayer, is our transformed lives. And so our third point is really just an expansion on the third point, transforming our ability. Read with me beginning in verse 19 afresh. This, we'll just repeat this uh, third point of the prayer. Uh, our request is His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way or everything in every place. All of verses 19 through 23 that we just read, all of that drives home the point and helps to answer the request to know God's incomparably great power for us. it, It describes what that power is. So if we study it, we'll somewhat know what it is. Just how much power has God made available for us who believe to live? How much power is available to live in the calling He has given us? To How much power is available to fulfill our role as His heirs? How much power is available to be a kingdom of priests in a holy nation? How much power is available to bring honor to His name and care for His household? How much power is available to have unity in the church? Not just this one, but certainly this one, and with all the other congregations of His church in this area, and with the church in the world. How much power is available? You might say, that's going to take a lot of power. It is going to take a lot of power, but this is how much is available, the amount that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You see, if we don't believe in the resurrection, because, oh, it's too far-fetched, we can't really believe in anything else that's got to be done in the name of Christ. Because it's going to take that much power to change us. And by the way, where it says he raised Jesus from the dead, it isn't, the, it, you might, just to get it in English a little better, you might better translate to raise Jesus from among the dead ones. It's not that he raised Jesus from the state of death. Well, sure, he did that. But it's even bigger than that. He raised Jesus from among the dead peoples. <laughs> the dead ones. It's masculine. It's not neuter. It's, it's, it's people. Well, what, why is that important? Well, It means that he was just the first of many. 
That if he's been raised from among the dead peoples as the first fruits, guess what? Everyone else is getting raised up too, out of the dead. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> it's the same amount of power available to us as that he used when he enthroned Christ over every other power. Might you need some power over other powers? Because you see, as we jump down to chapter 2, verse 6, we discover that he has raised us up also and seated us with him over all those same powers. That's glorious. Might you need the power over other powers, like including the powers that seem to entrap you and imprison you in sin? Including the powers that seem to bait you and entice you into conflict and hate? That keep telling you that the only way to win is to punch back, to yell back, to stand your ground, to get your way? Or any one of the many lies we are prone to believe? How about power over the powers that lie to you and tell you that God is punishing you every time something goes wrong? How about power over the powers that keep you from letting people know your situation because you fear what they will think or what will happen? How about power over the powers that tell you that you will never be good enough uh, as a mom or a dad or good enough as a son or a daughter? How about power over the powers that tell you that it isn't worth investing your life into God's family because it's too flawed or too broken? Of course, neglecting the fact that you two are flawed and broken. How about power over the powers that every time you, you seem to be making progress in your relationships, th- th- those powers seem to cause you to be suspicious of the other person or person such that you sabotage those very relationships that you've always longed for? How about power over the powers that try to get you to join the rest of the world in aligning ourselves in binaries of us against them, convincing you that the other is trying to destroy you and drag you back into chaos? making them the ultimate enemy who must be destroyed? The very powers that keep us in conflict with groups of people in the world. Listen, not only has Christ been raised and seated above those heavenly or spiritual powers, we have been raised and seated above them as well. We do not have to live under their authority any longer. But we have to have our eyes open, our transformation, our our, our imaginations transformed. We have to have vast picture windows put in the side of the house that has for far too long been completely walled off. The point of knowing this knowledge is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not knowledge so that we can sit around talking about just how much power is available to us. It's not knowledge uh, in some abstract sense. As if now that I have this power, let's see what I could do with all this power. Maybe I could go around doing all sorts of superhero kinds of things. Maybe I can raise the dead too, just like God did. It's not power to that end. No, the only reason Paul tells us that God used this power to raise Christ is to communicate just how much power it is. It's more than enough power for what we need. Amen? The purpose of making the power available, on the other hand, is, uh, to us is to accomplish the calling and the task given to us, the church. That He would make known to us the hope of His calling. And oh, by the way, that He'd let us know how much power is available to do just that. It's 
these verses coupled with the beginning of chapter 2 are another way of describing what we saw last week in Romans 6 and Colossians 2, that having died with Christ, we've been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him into an entirely new way of life. And it comes with the power to do so. It is the power to live as His heirs, the ones responsible for His household, His adopted children. And then finally, I just want to touch on that phrase, in the heavenly places or in the heavenly realms, depending on what translation you have. You know, he seated us like in heavenly places. He seated Christ in heavenly places. We read that in chapter 1, verse 3. We're blessed with uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That phrase is found ti- five times in the whole Bible. All five are in the letter to the Ephesians. Now, the word is found in various forms elsewhere. <clears throat> But the phrase, which is a bit unique, when you first read it, it seems a bit confusing because, like, why is that preposition with that word? It it doesn't normally seem to be what you'd expect. So it's a very particular phrase, and it shows up five times in one letter. There in chapter 1, verse 3, here in verse 20 that we read, Christ is raised from among the dead ones and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all uh, each of these powers. It's the same phrase in in each of these. Chapter 2, verse 3, God... Uh, raised us, or is it verse 6, with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. Chapter 3, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities or spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. Chapter 6, verse 10, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Greek phrase could refer to heavenly places or realms if it's understood to be neuter. Same exact form of the word could be taken as masculine. That's why the confusion, it looks identical. Uh, And if it's masculine, it could refer to heavenly beings. Good arguments can be made either way. The modern consensus is that it is heavenly places or realms, not beings. Now, whether that's due to the modern mechanistic view of the world or not, I can't tell you. Why, Why we favor that one might be because it aligns with our... Uh, modern sense of the world. It might be for other good reasons. There's a variety of things to consider. But, I think it's probably best to at least keep both senses in mind. Something like, in the spiritual world and among the spiritual beings that rule in that world. Whether they rule rightly or they rule in rebellion. the, The demonic forces, if you will. It makes a bit more sense, at least to me, of the blessing in chapter 1, verse 3, that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I mean, reading that that way feels a little lackluster. Like, great, when am I going to those places? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little harder for me to conceive. Now, maybe it's my conception that's the problem, to be sure. But, on the other hand, if we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the midst of a supernatural world that includes all sorts of spiritual entities that attempt to rule us, well, now that's saying something. And that captures me. So I think it's good to keep both senses in mind because I think there's an aspect of both that is possibly going on there. We have been raised with Christ to a place not just among them, but over them. Not just among them, but over them. (coughs) You might say, are we? I don't see it. Exactly. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to install some big windows on that side of the house. As it stands, we we think there is a flower out there in the the spiritual world. But once the windows are installed, we'll realize there's not just a garden. There's a whole kingdom being restored and a whole garden of fruit everywhere you look. 
We won't change how we live until we change how we imagine things are. Especially those things which seem to have the greatest control over our lives. Amen? Christ reigns over all things in heaven and earth. We truly gather under His reign as He rules over everything, everywhere through the church. That's what we see in that painting in the dome, if you will. But the church must arise and be transformed in our imagination in order that we might be transformed in our lives so that we might act faithfully as heirs of God in Jesus Christ. God desires to fill the earth with his kingdom through you and me as we live out the gospel on earth. We are blind and therefore we keep finding ourselves tripped up by the lies of the spiritual forces of evil. As the Father opens our eyes to our calling as his heirs, his treasured inheritance, yes, we the church, us the church, if you will, as he opens our eyes to his incredible power available to transform us into those who indeed carry out his purposes on earth, we will be able to bear witness to that kingdom. The goal of, God's, uh, of Paul's prayer is that the church's imagination would be so reshaped so that Christ's rule over everything in heaven and earth would be manifest through the church in everything, in every place. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Give us eyes to see, we pray. Help us to reimagine the way things are, according to the truth of our adoption through Jesus Christ, our death and resurrection in Jesus Christ, our participation in the new creation. Help us to imagine that. Help us to see where our imaginations are counter to that. And in that renewing of our minds, Lord, help us to walk in a whole new way of life. In Jesus' name, amen.